Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Uh, and thanks to our readers too. Good evening, everybody. Uh, it's really great to be with you uh, tonight. It's been really good to be uh, with this lot this week. Um, I've said to them before, but uh, I absolutely loved it. It was both a pleasure and a privilege. Um, yeah, I am the aforementioned Crofty. Uh, Dave Crofts, if you want to be more official. Uh, and it's great to bring you greetings from Christchurch Central, uh, where I'm an associate minister, a church that was planted from this one 15 or so years ago. Um, so it's great to be working in partnership together in the gospel and expressing that by um, them letting me come and serve uh, you guys for the week. Um, we're going to pray together, and then we're going to look some more at God's word that has just been read for us. Uh, let's bow our heads, uh, let's quieten our hearts, and let's pray to our Father. Uh, On House Party this week, we looked at the moment in John 6 where Peter says to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to the Bible now, we would meet the Lord Jesus, that we would believe that he is the Holy One you sent to save us, and that we would receive his words of eternal life. Amen. The start of September comes to me, as I'm sure it does to many of you, with mixed emotions. Uh, On the one hand, it's my birthday tomorrow, so there's that. Thank you. Um, But it it is also the time of the year when life returns to normal after the school holidays. School term starts this week, university term isn't far behind, and there isn't another bank holiday until Christmas. The evenings are getting shorter, the first few leaves are starting to change colour, and I even had the frost warning come on on my car the other day. Uh, September is the start of the dying embers of the year, September, November, December. For many of us, this week is a moment of going back to normal after something abnormal, something amazing. That's the case for all these young people sat down to my left. We've had a brilliant time together on House Party, and this week could feel very much like coming back down to earth with a bump. And, I mean, we've all experienced these kind of back-to-normal, life-goes-on transitions, haven't we? They happen after good times, a holiday, a great celebration. They happen after bad times as well, actually. Um, I sadly had to duck out of house party for a day to attend a funeral. And in that context, people who have had a sad and sudden shock will, over time, be going back to normal in as much as they ever really can. These transitions that we go through are hard because the big things that we experience and the big things that we do, they change us. They have an impact on us. And it would be wrong to pretend that nothing has happened. But equally, you know, we can't keep going with a a house party level of emotional intensity. Um, We can't keep going with an immediate bereavement level of intense grief. Life, for better or worse, goes on. And what's true of life in general is true of the Christian life in particular, isn't it? Sometimes we have great spiritual highs, times of, of growth in our faith or in our godliness, and sometimes we have spiritual Lows, times when we're intensely struggling to believe the Christian truths, to live the Christian life. But much of the time, being a Christian is a slow and steady plod with God, as someone has called it. We said on Friday morning as we left house party uh, that we were coming back to normal life. But those of us who were Christians who believed uh, in Jesus were coming back with eternal life. 
So how do you do that? How do you navigate normal life where things go wrong, where you, you do things wrong, in the context of eternal life? You know, when you become a Christian and you joyfully accept that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your God, how do you keep the rest of your life from being an anticlimax? Well, John 21, I think, is a really helpful chapter for those sorts of questions because it feels a little bit like an anticlimax. You could ask why John 21 is even here at all. The ending of chapter 20, just have a look down at it, makes for a wonderful climax to a book. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples. He's been hailed by Thomas in verse 28 as Lord and God. And then John has given that wonderful summary in verses 30 and 31 of why he wrote his book. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And you know the music swells, the scene cuts, and the end credits roll, right? It's a brilliant ending. So what's with the fishing trip so wonderfully enacted by our deadpan disciples? It's a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? Why has John included it? Well, just have a look at verse 1. I think we get a bit of a clue here. Uh, afterwards, John writes, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. See, the risen Jesus has got more appearing to do. Uh, he has more to teach or to remind his disciples about who he is. He appears to them again. He reveals himself to them again. In fact, our, our English translation has kind of smoothed over uh, that verse. In verse 1, John repeats the appearing, the revealing word. Uh, where it says in our version, it happened, uh, John has written, uh, and he appeared. So uh, afterwards, Jesus appeared, and he appeared this way. That's a bit clunky, isn't it? You can see why the translators have done that. Uh, but it shows that this idea of Jesus appearing, Jesus revealing himself, is central to this chapter. The same word, the same idea, comes further down the passage in verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So as we come to this passage in the Bible, it's not just, we're not just tying up loose ends in the plot. You know, what's going to happen to Peter? He denied Jesus in chapter 18. Are we left on a cliffhanger? It's not, it's not primarily a chapter about Peter. It's a chapter in which Jesus reveals himself. That's what we can expect now as we come to it. And uh, spoiler alert, so if you don't want to know the structure of the talk, look away now. Uh, we're going to see two things this evening about who Jesus reveals himself to be. Things that we need to know in order to do normal life in light of eternal life. A normal life where things go wrong. Normal life where we do things wrong. We're going to see that Jesus reveals himself to be the sovereign servant and that Jesus reveals himself to be the merciful master. So first thing, Jesus is the sovereign servant. We're looking here at verses 1 to 14. As I say, after giving us the setup in verse 1, uh, verses 2 and 3 take us on a fishing trip. Uh, Simon Fat, uh, Peter, who's, you know, who's kind of the, the leader of the disciples, uh, the one who gave that threefold denial, uh, he and others, including John, the writer of the gospel, uh, have returned from Jerusalem and the events of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection back north to Galilee, where many of them were from. And for Peter, who was a fisherman by trade, it's very much back to normal, isn't it? He's gone back to doing what he did before he started following Jesus. 
Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that this is a classic bit of running away, that the disciples, all of whom abandoned Jesus in the run-up to his crucifixion, are avoiding him now that he's come back from the dead. I don't think that's necessarily the case. We, we know from Matthew's gospel that Jesus had instructed them to return to Galilee. And you know, when you see how Peter responds to Jesus in verse 7, he leaps out of the boat to go and meet him. Those aren't the actions of a man running away, are they? But there's still, I think, something strange about this fishing trip. I mean, they've seen a man rise from the dead. Surely that changes everything. And yet they go back to their old lives. Maybe Maybe they are just craving a bit of normality, I don't know. But John, we, we saw uh, from John's gospel on House Party that John's quite big on the details in how he tells his stories. And he mentions in verse 3 that it's night time. And I wonder if that's symbolic for a state of darkness, of confusion, of these guys simply not getting it. Anyway, the fishing trip is a failure. They don't catch anything, despite all of the skill and experience present on the boat. It's... It's a circumstantial failure, I suppose, rather than a moral one, but it's still a failure. So by the time verse 4 rolls around, they're probably feeling pretty tired and hungry and frustrated, at which point the last thing they need is the helpful advice of a friendly stranger on the shore. Uh, One of the smugger moments of my life was uh, when I was on holiday with um, my wife Lainey's family uh, and her father, my brother-in-law, and his father. uh, Those three men invited me to go night fishing with them. Now, I declined because I was feeling tired, um, but all evening I was sort of worrying that I'd missed out on this great adventure and I thought they were going to come back with all these tales of you know, enormous fish that they'd caught, that kind of thing. But then when they returned, when they kind of cruised back into the harbour the next morning, it turned out that they'd had an awful time. Uh, they hadn't caught anything, the night had been long and boring and frustrating. And of course, I was tactful enough not to rub that in. But imagine how much worse it would, would have been if when they came back into the harbour, um, I'd been there, fresh from my good night's sleep, and I'd shouted out to them, guys, the fish are down here. I don't think it would have gone down very well. Nobody likes an armchair commentator, do they? Especially when you're struggling with something. But in John 21, there's something about what this chap says that makes them take notice, makes the disciples listen. And when they follow his advice... They're blessed with a massive catch. So many that they couldn't even haul the net in in verse 7. They could only drag it, verse 8. So many that, you know, presumably somebody there said, this is a lot of fish, shall we count them? And they did. And there were 153. See, Jesus appears to his disciples in their failure and in their frustration as their sovereign servant. Sovereign because it's a miraculous catch of fish by which Jesus demonstrates his rule over creation, just like with the feeding of the 5,000, just like with the walking on the water that we looked at on House Party. And it's that kind of miraculous nature of it that enables John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, verse 7, to recognize Jesus. What does he say there? It is the Lord. Presumably, he was too far away to recognize him by sight or even by the sound of his voice. But the miracle that Jesus does here gives the game away. It's very similar, actually, to one that he did right at the start of his ministry when he first called some of these guys to come and join him as fishers of men. It's not one that John records for us, but it's there in Luke chapter 5 if you want to go and look it up. But how is Jesus using his sovereignty over creation here? Well, he is using it to serve his disciples. 
He's using it to bless them in their hour of need, to turn their fruitless labor into a fruitful harvest. And he goes on serving them as the story continues. Look at verse 9. By the time they get to land, Jesus has already got the fire going, ready to cook them some fish. And verse 12 is, to a food lover like me, just one of the sweetest verses in the Bible. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. I have some friends who have that verse on their kitchen wall. That's a great choice, I think. Come and have breakfast. As a Christian, you worship a God who says things to his people like, come and have breakfast. This is a God who cares for the practical details of life, who provides food for the hungry, who invites them to sit with him and to eat. This is our God, the servant king. But, The menu of this first men's breakfast in church history ought to ring some bells, especially with the green t-shirt brigade. Uh, What are they eating in verse 11? Have a look. It is bread and fish. And this has happened before in John's gospel. Way back in chapter six, we've been there all week, when Jesus used a small amount of bread and fish to feed those 5,000 people, after which he said those famous words, that formed our memory verse for the week, John 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Or uh, reading from verse 48 of chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread, That came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. See, when Jesus serves his disciples this particular breakfast, he is reminding them of his ultimate act of service, his ultimate act of sacrifice, his death on the cross for the life of the world. John 21. It's not an anticlimax, it's kind of a parting shot, a reminder that everything that Jesus said he was in John chapter 6, he still is in John 21, this side of the resurrection. He is the bread of life. He is the way to know God forever. Jesus is the sovereign servant. He's your sovereign servant. Jesus is Lord over the details of your life, even the bits of your life that you think look like they've gone wrong. He's Lord right down to the most painful of personal circumstances, and he is with you to serve you in those circumstances. Not serve you as in you tell him what to do. He is the sovereign servant, remember, but serve you as in do what is best for you, enable you to endure hardships until he sovereignly brings them to an end, even if that end doesn't come until eternity. And so if, like me, you're ever tempted to doubt that, you think that life has gone sort of irreparably wrong, remember how Jesus sovereignly served you at the cross. And take this breakfast, as I think John intends us to take it, as a reminder that Jesus is our sovereign servant. We can trust trust him. We can depend on him. We must remember his words to his disciples in John 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. See, even though Jesus has risen from the dead, Things will still go wrong in life and in Christian ministry. You know, you'll have evangelistic events where you're doing all you can to give out Jesus, to share the message of the gospel. And sometimes it will be just like that fruitless fishing trip. You won't really gather in many, if any, Christians. 
How will you deal with that aspect of normal life, normal ministry? It's by remembering, I think, that Jesus is your sovereign servant. He is the bread of life. He feeds us. He refreshes us. He restores us. He's in charge of everything. Okay, so maybe that's when things go wrong sort of in our circumstances. But what about when we do things wrong? What about when we mess up? Even when we're Christians, when we've tasted the bread of life, um, when we've tasted eternal life, we still sin. We still fail our Lord and God. Well, that's where we need to know our second point for this evening from the second half of John 21. Uh, Jesus is the merciful master. It's a wonderful conversation between Jesus and Peter in verses 15 to 17, isn't it? Um, Peter, of course, you'll remember uh, from John 18, had denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Jesus told him he was going to do it, and he still did it in John 18, disassociated himself from his Lord, from his master. And John, the details man, has already placed a little hint that Peter's denial is going to come up in this chapter. In verse 9, he has the disciples gathering around a charcoal fire. And it was around the fireside that fateful night uh, before Jesus' crucifixion when Peter did his three denials. Uh, Should be ringing some bells. Uh, So Peter's denial is hanging over this whole conversation. And the question is, what is Jesus going to do with a failure like Peter? It's Jesus' chance to publicly rebuke him, isn't it? To put him in his place. And yet, instead of a public rebuke, what we have is a public restoration, a public reinstatement. Let's have a look at it. Uh, Verse 15. Jesus asked Peter a pointed question, and he addresses him with the name he had before he was a follower of Jesus, Simon, because Peter, the rock, had crumbled. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? By which I think he just means the other disciples. Peter was a bit prone to boasting that, you know, I love you, Jesus, more than any of these other ones do. And Peter's response is clear, isn't it? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then I think there's an implicit sort of in that case, in what Jesus says next, if you love me, feed my lambs. And you would think, wouldn't you, you know, that would be job done. Uh, Jesus has checked if Peter still loves him. Peter has said that he does, and Jesus has given him a job to do, to feed his lambs, by which Jesus means his people, his followers. Remember, in John's gospel, he describes himself as the good shepherd, his people are his sheep. But then in verse 16, Jesus asks the same question again. And Peter gives the exact same response, and Jesus gives pretty much the same commission. The gist is the same anyway. Tend my sheep. And then in verse 17, the conversation is repeated a third time. And John tells us that Peter was grieved by this. Perhaps because he thought Jesus didn't believe him, but I reckon more likely because the penny has dropped and he has joined the dots between the three questions of this conversation and the three denials of a few days earlier. You see how carefully, how patiently Jesus deals with Peter. At one and the same time, he is facing him up to his failure, but he's also restoring the relationship. The emphasis is not on guilt-tripping Peter. This is not a guilt trip. It's more like a forgiveness trip, if that's a thing. The threefold question is not just a reminder of all that Peter did wrong when he denied Jesus those three times. It's also a sign that all is forgiven. And this is a really important lesson, isn't it, for us as we go into normal life. You guys have been back from house, from house party for, what, 48 hours? Anybody sinned yet? Probably, right? <laughs> Failure is inevitable, not probably, it's inevitably. 
Peter explicitly denied his association with Jesus. He spoke and he acted like he wasn't one of Jesus' followers. Basically, he cheated on Jesus. But the risen Lord Jesus, who is revealed to us in John 21, is patient and merciful with failures like Peter, failures like me, failures like you. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. He is the Lord of second chances and third chances and fourth and fifth chances for that matter. Jesus is the merciful master. He has mercy on Peter the failure and he not only restores their relationship to one of love, but he goes even further. He reinstates Peter to a position of responsibility. Peter's given a significant ministry as a servant of this merciful master. His failure, properly dealt with, does not disqualify him from ever serving Jesus. Instead, Peter goes on to be one of the key leaders in the church, a man through whose preaching and whose writing the church would be fed for the entire history of it. And I want to say to you this evening that if Jesus can use Peter, well, Jesus can use you. I think it's really interesting to have this episode in mind when you read 1 Peter, Peter's first letter in the New Testament, and especially chapter 5. And I wonder if Verse 6 maybe came out of this John 21 experience. 1 Peter 5 verse 6, Peter writes, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Peter's certainly humbled by Jesus here, isn't he? Maybe he even found it humiliating. But this incident is part of Jesus' plan to restore him, to exalt him. It's almost like Jesus knocks him down, but then he lifts him up to stand before him and to serve him. That's not to say that serving this merciful master will be easy, will be a bed of roses. For Peter, it wasn't going to mean roses. It was going to mean, verses 18 and 19, nails. The nails of crucifixion, arms stretched out, dying for Jesus. For Peter, following Jesus was going to mean following him all the way to the cross, a humiliation in many ways greater even than this one. But it would also mean glory in eternity beyond Peter's imagining. It would mean... I think this is what um, Jesus is alluding to in verse 18. It would mean surrendering the independence of youth, suffering for Jesus, suffering like Jesus, and putting himself in a position where he could depend only on Jesus as he died for his Lord. Of course, Peter's fate is not everyone's fate, uh, as the little exchange with John in the next few verses shows us. But Jesus' call to Peter is his call to every single one of us. Follow me. And when you are following this sovereign servant, this merciful master, failure is not final. Jesus is sovereign over our circumstantial failures, the fruitless fishing trip, the dead-end job, the broken relationship, the financial hardship, the frustrations of ill health. And he is merciful in our moral failures. All of those should-have-dones and shouldn't-have-dones and shouldn't-have-kept-on-doings that plague us on a daily basis. Even this side of the resurrection, even this side of house party, things will still go wrong. We will get things wrong, but Jesus is still sovereign. Jesus is still merciful, and those things will never change. What does it mean to follow this master? What does it look like? Well, as we draw to a close, let me give you three words to finish with. Trust, obey, and love. Trust. Trust your risen, sovereign servant, 
that he really is in control, that Jesus has not taken his eye off the ball of your life and left you in free-falling failure. He is in control, even of the details of your life. He is with you, and he loves you, even in normal, day-to-day, feels-boring-to-you life. Jesus is with you. He's ruling over it. Trust him. Secondly, obey. Obey your risen, merciful master. He is your Lord. He gives you commands. He gave these guys the command to swap sides with their nets, and what did they do? They obeyed. He gave Peter a command to feed his sheep, and what did Peter in time do? He obeyed. And I want to say, actually, that that command that is given to Peter, the feed my sheep command, uh, in some measure, actually, is given to all of us who are Christians. We're all meant to be feeding one another with the bread of life. It is, though, especially relevant to those of us in positions of church leadership, Again, in 1 Peter 5, Peter writes to elders of churches, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. That's Peter sort of passing on to others the task that Jesus gave him, isn't it? And it comes with this encouragement, 1 Peter 5 verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So trust, obey, and finally love. Tonight Jesus asks you that simple question that he asks Peter Do you love me? And I want to stand before you tonight and say unashamedly, I love Jesus. That is quite cheesy, isn't it? And there are some contexts in which it would be a lot harder to say it than this one. I mean, it's easy when you're stood in front of a room full of people, most of whom also love Jesus. But that is important to say, isn't it? I love Jesus. After all Jesus has done for me, how can I not And I think that is the most important thing in Christian life, in Christian ministry, love for Jesus. It's more important than all of the gifts, all of the experiences, all of the training that you might go through. Loving Jesus is the key to Christian life, the key to Christian usefulness. And it's absolutely at the heart of connecting the eternal life that he gives us to the normal life that we go on with day by day. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, but you know you know that you are one thing. You are a failure. Maybe you've been dealt with harshly for your failure. Maybe you're looking for somebody who is going to be patient and merciful, who will sacrifice themselves for you, who will love you. That somebody is Jesus. If that is you, uh, have a word with one of the leaders here at this church. Have a word with Paul. He loves nothing more than introducing people to Jesus, and he's really, really good at it. Um, so give him a chance to give him a chance to get even more practice, I suppose. Um, if you know you're a failure, but you don't know the mercy of Jesus, find out more. Come to him. Maybe you're here this evening, and you are one of those people who's involved in Christian ministry. Uh, My encouragement to you, and I include myself in this, is keep loving Jesus. The world around us will be always trying to knock our love for him, put up in front of us other things that we ought to love more than Jesus. Uh, Popularity, uh, power, influence, all of those kind of things. Keep loving Jesus. He alone has the words of eternal life. He He is our sovereign servant. He is our merciful master. And finally, maybe you're here tonight as a Christian. Uh, You know and you love Jesus, but you just know that you've let him down. Uh, Maybe you're worried about where that leaves you. Maybe you're despairing. Let me say this to you. Jesus knows that you love him. He knows the desires of your heart. He knows that while spiritually you're willing, the flesh is all too often weak. 
And if at the moment it feels like Jesus is humbling you, that is because he intends to lift you up. We're all of a sheep, aren't we? That's first and foremost how Jesus describes us in, that, in, in this passage. We're all prone to wonder. And we need to know that while we will fail Jesus, he will not fail us. As a Christian, you are never ever in a position where you can say or somebody can say to you, well, that's it. There's no way back from this. Nobody can ever say that to you with Jesus. And if you struggle to believe that, look at the resurrection. Look at that battered body, broken, sealed tight in a cold stone tomb. There was no way back from that, right? Wrong. The Easter story is a comeback story and it paves the way for each and every one of us to have our own little comeback story, our coming back to Jesus. So if you feel you failed him, if you're worried that, that your guilt is going to keep you from him, come back to him. There is hope, there is mercy, there is grace and love beyond your wildest imaginings flowing from his cross. We're going to sing in a moment, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Let's make that sort of thing our prayer as we pray now and then we'll stand and sing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending the Lord Jesus to us. Thank you that he died for us, uh, the bread of life broken that we might have life. Thank you that he rose again and thank you that he is with us now by his spirit. We praise you for what we've seen of him in John 21, that he's our sovereign servant who will not let us slip out of his control, slip through his grasp. Uh, but lovingly serves us and helps us. And we praise you that he is our merciful master um, who forgives us when we get things wrong and he recommissions us to go and live for his praise and glory. Please help us, uh, Father, to live for the praise and glory of your son as we go into the week ahead, connecting our normal life to the eternal life that in your mercy you've given us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.